0: This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Sami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardog, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit.
1: America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest, we're pleased to welcome to this program David Blumberg. David Blumberg is the founder and managing partner of Blumberg Capital. David is an authority on early-stage investing with decades of experience. He founded Blumberg Capital in the early 1990s and launched its first venture-backed fund in 2001. their presence can be found in San Francisco, New York, Tel Aviv, and now in Miami, Florida. David earned his bachelor's degree in government cum laude from Harvard College and his MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and INSEAD. David, it is a great honor to welcome you to America's Roundtable. Welcome, David.
1: Welcome, David. Thank you, Joel and
2: Natasha. It's an honor and my pleasure.
1: Well, David, over the past nine years, 5.6 million people have left California and moved to Texas, Washington, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. For those who moved to Texas or Florida, they replaced California's 13.3% income tax, which is the highest in the U.S., with no income tax in Texas or Florida. Burdensome regulation, high taxes, and high cost of living are most common reasons for businesses, individuals, and families moving out of California. There is a recognizable trend of tech exodus from California. Among the recent migrants leaving the state are car company Tesla, Hewlett-Packard, Oracle, software company Palantir, and now you, David, also are in the process of leaving California and moving to Florida. Well, certainly California's loss will be Florida's gain. David, could you kindly share about your observation and comparison between California and Florida when it comes to the ease of doing business and quality of life?
2: Thank you. It's a very important question. And I think you correctly phrased it as a trend, not a snapshot. In other words, this has been going on for some number of years. And the interesting thing about it is that, uh, I'm going to quote Walter Riston. He was the CEO and chairman of Citibank. And decades ago, he wisely said, that capital goes where it is welcome and it stays where it is well-treated and the talent and initiative and entrepreneurship follow. And so that's what we're seeing happening. There is, whether people like to think about it or not, there is competition for talent. There's competition for capital. And so because of the uh, COVID lockdowns, I think many of us realize as individuals and with our families and our colleagues that we can really work from anywhere. We're much more mobile than we knew previously, and that our productivity stayed high. We were able to find deal flow. We were able to do diligence. We were able to close deal flow. We were able to help and support our portfolio companies from our you know, basements or our attics or our offices at home. And we were able to get things done without the commute and without the travel. So that has opened what um, economists call Pareto optimality uh, options. And so people are making choices. Some people are making choices to go to Places that have lighter taxation, lighter regulation, other people, a whole set of other people, part of the probably a majority of those 5.3 million that you mentioned who've left California in recent years have also left for another reason, which we haven't mentioned yet, which is just lower cost of living, and we see that very very trenchantly in a move. I I was watching a um, show with one of the senators from Texas the other day, and he was saying that a Californian who moves to Texas will see a 40 to 50 percent Increase in their quality of life, standard of living in Florida. I see that the gas is about half price. Food and vegetables are slightly cheaper than in California. That sales tax is lower. Obviously, the income state tax is zero here versus California's. A lot of it has to do with regulatory difference. One, for example, Thomas Sowell, the famous professor from Stanford, the economist, wonderful man, won a Nobel Prize. It's just awesome. We did a study between comparing Texas and California for the past 40 years. And what he learned is that the perhaps, perhaps well-intentioned regulation policies in California to set aside a lot of land for agricultural purposes in near urban settings or to green belts or a whole variety of different zoning regulations essentially have the effect in economic terms of, reg- of constricting supply while the demand has been rising. So he did a comparison of the San Francisco Bay Area to those in say, Houston, and interestingly, both the Houston area and the Bay Area had similar population sizes throughout this. They both started at X, and they grew significantly. Houston, fueled by the energy boom, Silicon fueled by the tech boom, and yet Houston pursued a very laissez-faire zoning policy. Basically, they would allow supply to accommodate demand. So, if there was more demand by people moving there, uh, developers could build new um, units of housing, whether tall towers or Affordable housing, it was very much open to the market supply and demand. Whereas in California, there was more of a top-down approach, telling developers what they had to build, what they could build, limiting them. And that has had its impact over the years, such that Thomas Sowell found that in those 40 years, the prices for equal property uh, types, for equal sizes and for equal apples-to-apples comparison, essentially there was a 4X increase in California versus the benchmark Uh, of Houston. So that has a big effect. And the people it hurts most are people in the middle class, the young people moving here to try and start their careers and their families, you know, after university or graduate school. So that's what's happened over 40 years. It didn't happen in a day. It took time, but you add drop by drop by drop and soon you have a flood.
1: This year, 2020, will be remembered in America and the world for China's coronavirus that spread around the globe, becoming a deadly pandemic, ensuing lockdowns, economic downturn and vaccine release in a record-breaking time, thanks to President Trump. We had to adjust and shifted to working remotely meeting and communicating via digital platforms, buying online. Many small businesses and restaurants were forced to close permanently. David, as we look back at this year, 2020, and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with a vaccine, what are your reflections on 2020 and predictions for 2021 and specifically in your area of innovative technologies?
2: Thank you, Natasha. That's a very profound question because this year was so unprecedented. 2020 really engulfed the entire world, or almost all of it, in a pandemic that the likes of which had really never been seen, even in 19, 1918. And the response of governments was vastly different than in 1918. So we had just unprecedented difficulties. However, technology really jumped to the fore and helped solve a lot of the problems. First, let's give credit to the biotech industry, which developed uh, vaccines in, in 10 times uh, shorter uh, period than historically been possible, and that was definitely part of the uh, due to part of the administration 's deregulatory impact and the public private partnerships that were uh, struck, and then the really tenacious development of um, the researchers and so on and what we saw was a unleashing of work that had do- been done previously but was accelerated in its adoption because we were able to get very large cohorts of people tested. And we were able to see that the toxic toxicity and other types of um, testing that needed to be done could be telescoped in a shorter time frame. So that's marvelous on the biotech side. Now in the realm that I invest in, which is software, mostly digital innovation transformation, we also saw great adoption of digital technologies. For example, I'm speaking to you on my mobile phone, which is my new wallet. I don't use my traditional wallet. I haven't used it in eight, nine months. I use the phone entirely now for all of my cash transactions. They're no longer cash. They're now virtual and digital. And that's, you know, the U.S. and Western Europe catching up a little bit to East Asia. East Asia was doing this kind of digital money for probably 10 years. And so there's some equalizing that because everyone's been through this issue where we can't touch, we can't use, we don't want to use uh, physical things. And so the digital domain has become our gateway to freedom and to uh, practicality of of use of technology and of of goods and services. The entrepreneurial community has really stepped up. I mean, we have seen um, e-commerce boom. We have seen telemedicine boom. Again, deregulation helped. The president signed a very important uh, piece of regulation that many people don't know about, but it essentially allowed cross-state licensure of medical professionals, meaning that if I'm a very specialist, uh, heart disease specialist in Kansas, I can now treat people in Texas or in California, whereas previously I was only able to um, treat people in the state where I was licensed. So this is a good thing for the world because, again, it expands options, it it removes barriers to supply and demand, it it allocates um, these kinds of resources better, and it's more flexible. So it's labor mobility in the service of a better outcome for the population. So those were all very positive things. We also saw a decline in the use of cash, obviously, and an increase in the use of fintech solutions. On the negative side, we saw an increase in cybersecurity attacks. Some of the largest ones came against the government, but there were certainly many against private companies and against individuals. And to that realm, which is really sort of a cat and mouse game, again, the technologists had to deal with a much larger, what we call surface area of attack. And so the new technologies, endpoint solutions, companies in our portfolio, such as Deep Instinct and Insights and Biocatch and Cybellum, a number of companies really um, helped solve some of these problems and will go forward in a in a new manner. Because if I can switch now to the new future, you asked about that. The future is going to be a little bit different from the past because we're not going to go back to where we came from. Yes, there will be a return to offices, but I think it will be a followed by or included in a de-urbanization movement. I think we've seen that if we are too concentrated with single point of failures, whether it's you mentioned first China and supply chain, that supply chain is reconfiguring. People are moving factories and resources out of China and into a whole variety of other countries. So China's star may dim a little bit and a number of other countries will start to uh, increase their share of manufacturing throughout Southeast Asia, particularly, and probably into the Western Hemisphere as well. And then they'll be re-onshoring uh, back into the United States, which has a huge boom in its energy production through fracking, which has lowered the cost of natural gas. And it means that, therefore, we can see um, lower cost of production for petrochemicals and for energy-intensive uh, products. And if we take into the account of shipping across the ocean and so on, that a lot of um, manufacturing, because it's very highly automated with low energy costs here, can be done better here in North America than farther af- afield. So that's going to happen. It's going to be a very strong year, I think, in 2021. There's huge pent-up demand. Consumers have had to save by force. They really couldn't spend nearly as much as they would have otherwise. They couldn't really do physical entertainment. They couldn't go to stores and restaurants. So they did some online, but it wasn't the same amount of spending. So they've really had a net savings, quite substantial. Housing has increased in value, so that, and, the, and the stock market's gone up so much, so that there's a wealth effect for the average balance sheet of the consumer that's strong. And then we know that corporate balance sheets are quite strong. Um, they came into this crisis with the strongest economy uh, in history. Uh, early 2020, January and February were extremely strong months, and the prior year had been strong. So... We really came from a strength. We had this V-shaped crisis, and it's recovering now quickly. And I think that after the vaccines get distributed pretty widely, we're going to have a very robust return to growth.
0: Basically, at this moment, a uh, segue into our next topic, which takes us to America's leadership in the Middle East, America's close ties with Israel, and the potential of expanding trade to a growing market in the region. And I recall in 2015, when Natasha and I had the privilege and honor of hosting the inaugural Jerusalem Leaders Summit, bringing together business and media leaders from the United States and Europe uh, to Israel, we were under very different circumstances. At that time, we observed the Iran nuclear deal, and the region was reeling with instability in much of Iraq and also Syria, overrun by the ISIS terrorists. And now fast forward to 2020, the U.S. Embassy is firmly established in Jerusalem. The Golan Heights is acknowledged by the United States as part of Israel's sovereignty. And in the autumn of this past year, we witnessed the unveiling of the Abram Accords led by President Trump and his team, including Jared Kushner, who worked with Gulf State leaders and secured the normalization of relations with Israel. David, I would like to present to you a two part question. From your observations of the Middle East over the years and your company's presence in Tel Aviv, Israel, what do you see as the immediate and long term dividends of the Abram Accords? And what do you expect to see in the areas of trade and commerce, reaching a potential of 400 million? individuals living in Arab states which are part of the Arab League of Nations.
2: Well, we're living through almost miraculous times. It is something that has been long sought by um, many people of goodwill on, on all sides of the political spectrum and all sides of the cultural issues and the religious issues and the geostrategic issues. But finally, you know, sort of common sense, practicality uh, took hold. And um, I think, frankly, the Sunni Shiite um, divide and the fear of Iran really started to mobilize the Gulf uh, Arab states to lead. But now we've seen other countries such as Morocco and Sudan join in with full peace treaties with Israel. And so it's a remarkable turn of events. Uh, it can only rebound to the benefit of the world uh, because you know this Middle East area has been a source of conflict and instability that, that affected the rest of the world because of the Middle East being the source of so much of the world's oil, particularly oil destined for uh, Europe and Japan, and so that involves and, and China. So that instability, the Persian Gulf um, bottleneck at the Straits of Hormuz, was always a, a threat. That it'll be mined, it would be attacked. Saudi um, installations would be attacked, as they were uh, a couple of years ago by Iran, you know, fairly recently and relatively effectively. So this helps uh, reduce some of that tension. I think you've seen oil um, start to resume its role um, as the lubricant of the world economy, and it's slowing. So. What does it mean for um, the tech world well in the tech world it's it's really very positive. there have been incipient interests from the Gulf states to trade with Israel for some time and i I've met for example, Saudi representatives in Israel and I've been there sort of secretly in the past I think now it's safe to say that I did and there have been you know trade going on, but it was undercover it was sort of done under other company um, names or it was done through intermediaries and so on. Now it can be out in the open. Um, we see delegations, including one of my colleagues, Yodfat borel bufres will be joining a delegation uh, going to the UAE soon. And we'll start to see these uh, trade delegations. Uh, I've always met with um, Gulf leaders, Saudi, Bahraini, UAE, Egyptian, etc., uh, in Davos. And when we talk, there's really goodwill on both sides. They understand that they're... Uh, mostly desert kingdoms and uh, nations and so on, and Israel's is also in the desert, and yet Israel has done some remarkable um, development in terms of water recycling, water generation, desalinization, uh, drip irrigation technology, which again, these other uh, desert kingdoms and nations would like to uh, use and, and develop as well. So that's gonna be an area of, of trade. So water technology, then agricultural technology. Because, again, they have similar climates. They have similar fast-growing populations. They want to feed their people and, and become exporters if they can. So agricultural technology as well. And there's energy technology, perhaps, in the, especially in the, this area, in the solar realm. You know, It's a very sunny region of the world that that can be deployed. And then there's the high-tech boom. And that's an area where the Gulf region are very educated. And Egypt tradition has had a very educated workforce. And Jordan And yet they haven't benefited as much from the tech boom as, say, other areas like Korea and maybe Singapore and some other places. So this will help, again, bring that forward because they can reduce their focus on, you know, the politics of fighting and name calling and everybody sort of being angry with one another and focus more on business deals and training the young people to take the jobs of the future, which are mostly going to be in the STEM realm. Then let's think about the geostrategic change. If this area reduces its volatility, then probably the price of um, oil and gas uh, comes down further because there's been a risk premium put on that. So that's a good thing, and and people who are building petrochemical plants can have more assurance of supply, so they can do longer-term contracts, which again you can reduce cost to the end and consumers through that mechanism. So it's remarkable times; it's almost miraculous. Uh, I think it's only going to go from strength to strength. I think you will see other Uh, leading Arab countries, um, such as Saudi Arabia and others, start to follow the same path, if not, you know, super out front uh, and open about it, then certainly uh, quietly behind the scenes. For example, Saudi Arabia recently allowed uh, overflights um, of Israeli aircraft to uh, fly over their country. So that's a big deal. And if you're at a state of war, you wouldn't allow that. If your state, you know, moving toward peace, that's what you do allow. And that's exactly what's happened. So I'm very optimistic. I think that Israelis will find themselves uh, welcome in these places. Many Israelis speak Arabic fluently and come from um, Arab countries uh, in the past, and their, their grandparents or parents did come from there. So there's a knowledge and a similarity of culture that will be um, surprising, I think, to many Arabs, but they will find the Israelis welcome partners in this peace treaty. And I think Israelis will learn a lot about how the culture of the Middle East is warm and hospitable. Uh, if we can get past the traditional fights, that they're going to find some great allies and new partners that will build both geostrategic relationships, diplomatic relationships, cultural relationships, and a lot, of course, in the tech realm that I know best.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable, David.
1: Thank you, David.
2: It's really been a pleasure. You two are such informed and uh, articulate hosts that it's uh, you make it easy.
0: Thank, Thank you, you so indeed. Much. We look forward to having you rejoin us in the future and wishing you a happy 2021.
2: Merry Christmas.
1: Happy New Year to you both.
0: Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Sami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit.
1: America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.